Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the poet and artist Stephen J. Fowler. Fowler's work spans from poetry and fiction to performance and visual art, and his work has become known internationally for its innovation in the field of live literature. I met with Stephen in August at the office of Henley Hale Brown Architects, where I work. In the interview, we talk about, among other things, Fowler's life before poetry as a doorman and a martial arts fighter, and the circumstances leading to him becoming a poet. We also talk about Fowler's belief in poetry as an elastic, collaborative practice, his focus on organizing to create new contexts for poetry, and what it means to be a future-facing poet. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. It was precisely because I knew you're working in a field which I'm interested in, but I have no technical expertise or practical expertise in, that if you did, uh, for all my knowledge, um, steer the conversation consistently towards the practice of architecture, that I would be forced to confront it against a different kind of expertise mm. and often say, I don't know. So if you want to keep the conversation within the bounds of what the podcast so far has aesthetically sought, then I'm very happy with that too. I'm not that fussed to talk about my own um, dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was kind of... I was kind of thinking the same thing, but in reverse, so that we might be veering more towards the world of poetry, uh, which is uh, a world I'm far less familiar with as well. So I'm sure we'll meet somewhere in the middle. Um, but um, you know, we were talking before about how I first came across your work, and it's through your collaboration with the landscape architecture practice, J. N. L. Gibbons. Um, and maybe before we get into your biography and how you came to be a poet, um, why don't we start there? How did you first meet um, Joe Gibbons and how did you decide that you would become a poet in residence at an, a landscape architecture firm? Well, I would say it's very important from the outset to note that they were the ones who decided whether I would be a poet in residence there. But the process of that was marked by a very fortuitous and, and lovely and generative meeting that we had at the South Bank Centre Joe's father, who's an extraordinary architect and a, and, a, and a wonderful human being, was giving a talk on um, his role in the building of Coventry Cathedral just after the war. And I was giving a talk on the overlooked tradition of post-war British, what I would call contemporary, but most people call experimental or avant-garde poetry. Um, and in the order, actually, I was supposed to follow him and I grabbed the organiser physically by the shoulders and said, reverse the order, I cannot follow him. And it turned out that people wept 
after his speech. It was so <laughs> moving and beautiful, his description of the, the opening of the cathedral with uh, violins playing and so forth. So I thought I was lost in the shuffle of that evening, but uh, Jo, as she is, was such an extraordinarily generous presence then to come up to me and give me a, a great sense of recognition, perhaps only two or three years into what I was doing then, because mm. I only started maybe in 2009. So I immediately felt this is a powerful human being who has an extraordinary balance between an immediate humanity and, and a, a really deft connection to subtle ideas around a profession I have no experience with. So I pursued Joe and Neil mm. directly and said, look, it was a delight to meet you. I don't know if you're familiar with the form of residencies, but it's relatively common for poets. May I be your poet in residence? Mm. And they were very generous to invite me to come into their office. And before even we discussed what that would be, they shared with me a great deal of their projects and their processes. And it turned out there was a fundamental connection between my methodology in poetry and their methodology in landscape architecture. And that was um, the place of research and development uh, as connected to, shall we say, liminal thinking around practice. Mm. Now, I would say that's not perhaps normal in poetry. It's a very specific mode of what poetry is. So it was fortuitous that we fit together so much. Uh, and that was quite a few years ago now. Could it be 2013, 14? And since then, it's become a friendship more than a residency. Mm. But it is a really generative, responsive relationship between us, I think, at this point. And so, like, a lot of the work you're best known for has to do with uh, collaboration. And reading more of your work and researching uh, your output over the past few weeks, the way I think of you now is as a, is as a collaborator, first and foremost, and as an organizer. Um, as much as a poet in the way that I guess we typically understand that term. Um, and so you kind of have this, it sounds like you kind of have this impulse to pursue uh, strange relationships. I think a project of yours that kind of characterizes that ambition is the enemies project. And so why don't, why don't we talk about that? So how, how did that begin and what exactly is the enemies project? Well, perhaps to just jump to the kind words, I'm sorry you had to spend two weeks reading my work. No. I'm not sure your brain, brain will recover from that, uh, from that torment. But um, I think it's precisely because the practice of, shall we say, curating and organizing as opposed to anthology editing or teaching mm -hmm. and the process of collaborating is unusual to poetry as it, as it isn't in, shall we say, music or acting or theater production or dance or almost every other art, filmmaking, uh, is why I've become associated with those two things, not necessarily because my practice is more dominated by collective working and by organization. It is just, it's so unusual within poetry because poetry in many ways is the least evolved of all of the art forms. Mm. It, it, is, it is the most rooted in a um, technical and uh, theoretical tradition that... Um, that it really has stultified in certain areas. So I came into poetry later in my life as a fully formed human man, and I found all these things to be um, immediate and obvious and organic. And then a few years into doing them, then a lot of people are like, oh wow, you collaborate a lot for a poet, you do a lot of organizing for a poet. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a huge uh, note to make, that it's perspective orientated. Were mm -hmm. you to look up most poets, you wouldn't find those words. Mm. But were you to look up most theater makers, you'd probably sit down and go, your latest play is about this. You're obviously a playwright who's, who's interested in this. You wouldn't take the time because it wouldn't be unusual to say, you also raised funds for that show 
and you worked with actors. Mm. So obviously the medium in and of itself is more singular than a lot of those professions, but poetry also culturally resists collaboration and mm -hmm. resists uh, integration with other things. It protects its uh, mode incredibly aggressively. So maybe actually before we, I get ahead of myself and talking about your current projects, I feel like we should talk a little bit more about poetry first and then how you, um, how you became a poet. And so you're saying that poetry is kind of less evolved, did you say that, than other art forms? In, in its um, most, shall we say, popular uh, guise, or in, in the guise that if you ask the average human being, what is this thing, mm -hmm. the, the things that they would think of are not what it is, in, oh, my, in my opinion. Okay, I kind of misunderstood that, but in a way that chimed with my feelings about poetry, which, um, are kind of from the gut, but what are they? Here what are goes. Your <laughs> no, I, well, this is a beautiful place to bounce off. Please tell me, Matthew. Uh, so, painful candor. Tell me. Well, because I was thinking that yeah, poetry to me is like quite an elemental medium. There's something very basic and foundational about poetry, um, and something very freeing about it as an ex as an expressive mode that you don't really find in a lot of other uh, mediums. And um, I was thinking it's kind of like a test site. It's a place of first principles um, when it comes to thinking about creative expression. And I think that for me, what's so exciting about poetry is that you can get pretty close to thinking about ideas of creative conception um, and questions about perception and expression really basic, almost like embarrassingly cliche, you know, ideas about how we exchange thoughts and feelings with each other. Mm. Um, and to me, that's really exciting. <laughs> mm. I think that's quite a, a sophisticated, but very open, if you don't mind me saying. Uh -huh. It's a very open notion of poetry that you have. You studied literature, didn't you? I did, yeah. I did my undergrad in English Lit. And so I've been exposed to a bit of poetry and I I like to read poems when when they kind of float by me but I'm definitely not a prolific um, reader of poetry by any stretch of the imagination. Few human animals are I would suggest it, it is it is perhaps quite rightly a marginal practice mm. I think it's it's quite good that it's marginal that it requires um, an attention and uh, fidelity that few other art forms do. And often that's only because of its reputation, but I'm quite happy with that. I would, I would be undisturbed if for my whole life long no one really read poetry in a popular way. I don't see why it should be more popular than it is. And so how did you come, you came to it relatively late in life, that's what you said. I think you were what, 27 when you started? A little bit younger, yeah, 25. Oh yeah. really, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well that's not that old then. I suppose I mean it in, in relativity to my peers. Uh -huh. Most professional poets, shall we say, they don't start at 25. No. They start at 15 or 12 or something. You know, some people have their book out at 18 or they're certainly in a, a lineage by their undergraduate degrees, especially still in this country, often coming through, shall we say, the Oxbridge mm. uh, to UCL, like London. The poetry triangle of unis does produce a lot. And now with creative writing, which I myself am guilty of teaching, you teach and at Kingston University? I do, I do, and I teach creative writing, so 
a lot of poets are produced through that system, which is great. But being 25 and having done something radically different, then it does completely change you. It's the greatest gift. Mm -hmm. As each year goes by, nothing is more powerfully um, clear to me than the fact that I have a hunger to read and criticise and question and break apart things that don't seem to be well justified. With even the most basic critical thinking, a lot of what people associate with poetry, in my opinion, falls away really, really quickly. Mm. For example, the notion that it's a singular art and collaboration doesn't fit it. If I ask people what are the most famous poetry collaborations, they would struggle to name one, let alone the most famous. And yet, if every poem is a piece of language reshaped in response to some sort of stimulus, then why would that stimulus not be the ideas or words of another poet? It doesn't make any sense to me that you would um, snap off those things that you're responding to in existence from other human beings unless it was a myth about the poet alone with their amazing metaphysical inspiration dropping out their golden turds for people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So was it a breaking down of this myth, this myth that allowed you to enter the world of poetry in the first place? Well, as I say, I think my naiveness and, and my remaining ignorance has been a massive advantage because I did genuinely read all traditions at once as much as someone can do that. And if we were going to be really simplified, and this is often problematic, those traditions are often split into two binary camps. One would be the romantic tradition, which emanates as a rebellion against hyperformalism, but did uh, completely emphasize the singular genius of the poet. This is the poet on top of a hill, a man always inspired by a muse, which is essentially a god, mm. and then generating a text which is so brilliant that it separates him for the rest of the human beings like a priest. And then there's another tradition, which is perhaps a hundred years old, which is the avant-garde modernist tradition, which suggests that that's uh, erroneous in the, the greatest sense. And with the rise of, shall we say, basic linguistic theory and modernism, um, we start to see poetry as the claiming and repatriating of fragments of language through the human mind. Mm. And those two things are so profoundly different in emphasis and tone that suddenly modernism creates a tradition whereby the poet is not necessarily privileged, that context is vitally important, that language itself is something recognised as a miracle barrier between the maelstrom of our brains and the communication between each other rather than the product of the singular godlike human man. And so I am obviously, after reading both of these traditions for eight hours a day for three or four years, um, very much in the latter camp, believing that, for example, my use to a landscape architecture firm is simply to re-shine a light on the contingency of the language they use to mediate their practice. Mm. That was a beautiful, fully formed thought. I apologize. No, I love <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's so compelling to hear you talk about these categories uh, and kind of break down this binary within poetry. Um, but you mentioned like this idea of like repatriating fragments of language mm. and this idea of like fragments of language and repatriating them. First of all, I'm wondering to who or to what, but before that, 
But, and before you decided to sit down for eight hours a day and read poems, um, I feel like your approach to it must have also been quite fragmentary or disheveled. And I kind of want to go back to that state of mind for a minute and understand, first of all, when you decided that you were going to commit to this endeavor to be a poet. Mm. Well, I think that what happened is initially I tried to be not fragmentary. I tried very hard and without going off on another waffle. Go for it. What I think it comes down to essentially, what I've realized about myself as a person, poetry is a way of mediating our own confusion about the role in which language plays in the relationship between ourselves and our thoughts and ourselves and other human beings. It is essentially the problem of other minds with language put at the forefront. It is essentially the art of dealing with the linguistic problems that only really existed in the 20th century in a definitive way through something creative and more fun than linguistics. When I began writing poetry, I tried to control language to create emotional insight. And that, you know, relatively succinct and generalized description is what I think most poems try to do. They try to funnel the experience of ape grunts that have been collectively agreed upon having an objective meaning into a series of lines with often arbitrary line breaks that are supposed to create in the reader or listener a moment of emotional reverence through the notion of insight. And it's my belief now, having yeah, been to maybe a thousand readings, organized another 800 and done maybe 500 readings and performances, released eight books, etc. that that's not true, nobody does that. There's like five people, I think, who really, really get that feeling. I think it's a myth. Mm. And I think we've lived off that myth in the same way that I think people used to sit in church didn't, they were thinking of their shopping lists and there was five people who were really thinking of God in the sense in which it was communicated. It's just the tradition has been so formal that nobody has stood up within the mainstream, not within the experimental community, because they've been talking about this for a hundred years and they're way past it. There's no one stood up and say, this is not really what's happening. This emotional insight is actually patronizing. I don't want the poet to tell me what it's like to see a refugee or to suffer. I know what that's like. I don't need that. And I think it comes from this notion that the urge of the poet is to control language, to comfort. Whereas the camp I have aligned myself to after a couple of years of trying to write smooth poems about wild animals or foxes or whatever poets do, the countryside, mm -hmm. I realized that actually I can't control anything. I'm gonna die. And that language before that death will not comfort me. And that the root meaning is Beckett's slightly cliched failure paradox, you know, mm -hmm. fail better. Right. The first note of understanding language before you re-displace it as an art form is to, is to understand it will always fail to communicate what you want to communicate. We will never now in this podcast be able to really communicate with each other the things we're thinking. But what we can do with these approximations is put them into play in a way where they have an information load. That's a conversation. A poem that has the same information load is useless. It is not using the medium for what it can do. The poem should think more about what it's not. It's not a conversation. It's not about relaying information. It's not something that could ever control language and the confusion of existence. It is a tiny linguistic fragment and provocation which will create thoughts in people the same way that an abstract piece of art would, an interesting building would, 
It is sensory through language. Mm. And that is confusing, difficult, ambiguous, and strange, and so it's not popular. Mm -hmm. And I think I led into that because my brain is fragmentary, I'm hyper aware, as you can tell by the volume of my nonsense already, I'm hyper-verbal, hyper-linguistic, and so poetry seemed kismet to me. Uh -huh. It sounds like such a comforting realization to have that um, to take, to take, almost to take pleasure in the lack of, the inherent lack of sense in language. And existence. And existence. And yeah, by extension, existence. Um, I still, maybe it's, maybe it's, um, maybe it's an awkward question to ask, but I'm still trying to picture you as a 25 year old, probably failing at something else before realizing that um, this medium and this practice is something that you could, you could find success in. I know that you are trained in martial arts. Yeah, yeah, that was my job. Okay, tell me more about that. So I, um, I did a lot of martial arts when I was younger, um, and then I took it very, very seriously. I did go to university, I went to Durham University, but I went doing a really bad subject and squeezing in. What and was I, the subject? It was sociology. I, I'm sorry sociologists listening, but okay. it was not a fantastic um, discipline. And um, I didn't study, I copied off people. And I did professional martial arts for three years. And then when I left, I taught. I was a doorman as well, mm. which was just chaos. It was just a very violent, strange life. And I was obviously working through my... Yeah, I definitely think I had feelings of like uncontrollable anger. Mm. The older I get, the more I talk to so many men who say that they had that too. Mm -hmm. And I think that being hyper alert you meet a lot of people who, who medicate that with alcohol and with drugs and stuff. And I never did that. I, but I loved to fight. Mm. <laughs> and it, I feel strange about that now because finding poetry randomly, arbitrarily, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I was in a big car crash and the car crash ended my martial arts. So I had no hand in it. And after the car crash, not being completely well, got a bit fat, got a bit sad as people do. And looking for a way out, as many people do, I signed up to an MA. Huh. <laughs> many people do MAs, I think, just because they don't know what to do. And it's a fantastic barrier. Mm. And I signed up to an MA in philosophy and it saved, it saved me. It was just the most beautiful thing because what I started to realize was that I loved it, but I hated philosophy. But what philosophy does is it teaches you to read and it teaches you to be a, a mini scholar and study. And in hating philosophy, I found poetry because I was reading about Heidegger and René Char. I was reading about Derrida and all these people. And then even in you know, the more formal British tradition of philosophy, there's this amazing reverence for poetry. And that mm. was my first ever experience of poetry was through philosophers. Mm. And where I was studying at University of London, there happened to be a, a poetry group, um, like a press, and I went just like a little little innocent chap and sat in the front row and that was my beginnings. Wow. And so it's like, it's the rigor of the practice of poetry that sounds like it was compelling to you. And that mm. it's funny, like you say you hated philosophy, but you also loved the experience of the discipline around philosophy. Well, I adored the reading because it required such attention and such uh, faithfulness and such critical thinking. I, I, that suited me so much and I hadn't had much like that. I mean, martial arts in and of itself 
is also an amazing background to have when you come into anything that's of the mind because it is entirely pragmatic. If it doesn't work, you will find out. <laughs> you will find out very quickly if mm -hmm. you are full of, of nonsense, to be polite. And, and martial arts is full of puffed up fools who walk in thinking they're tough and then you do some hill sprints and you find out that they're not. And what I did, especially mixed martial arts, it was, it was very, very trying on the nerves and the emotions, getting nervous for a fight for three months every morning and every night and then fighting in, in cages in the northeast in front of thousands of people against really hard working class people, which I was not. It, it taught a certain kind of discipline and energy, which I then took into philosophy. And what I found in philosophy is that people were arguing over nothing. Mm. They were arguing over, it was a theological debate essentially, Heidegger was a Nazi. No, he wasn't. And they started throwing food at each other. Hmm. And I thought, wow, I love Heidegger. Well, I don't like Heidegger, but I love reading the texts. But I, these people are deluded because they're not better people. You know, they're not better people than the people I used to be around. And those people were savages. So how can philosophy be a good practice if, and generalizing and being naive, of course, when I say this, the people who teach and learn it are just as faulty and pathetic as me and what I found with poetry is that of course the people there are also faulty and pathetic and lovely and beautiful but everyone's kind <laughs> I was just looking the, the three things I always say that got me into poetry is one naturally I was hyperlinguistic and it's a language art so it suits me very very well two it was the first thing I'd ever done in my life that was for no one else I was suddenly alone in my room reading and writing poems and I would feel a glow as though I was in a fight, but I'd look around and there was no one to please. Whereas in the past, I'd had a big hole in my stomach that had driven me to these extreme competition states in order to get a gratification that would melt within a day, like a lot of people do. They want um, affirmation. And it, poetry taught me self-awareness and it gave me the freedom and the third thing was, it's a beautiful industry to be in because everyone is lovely. Nobody, when they fall out with you, or if someone doesn't like your poems, they're like, I don't like your poems. And you're like, okay. And then they're like, what are you up to next week? <laughs> Whereas in martial arts, they're like, I'm going to come over to your house <laughs> and bash you in. So I was just, perspective-wise, I've got to travel around the world. I've got to meet people like you, Matthew, and people like Joe Gibbons for the last nine years and make a living, it's the most beautiful second life. Mm. So I adore poetry. I think it's so interesting that the kind of gratification you got out of violence could also be found in poetry. <laughs> People do often bring this up. Yeah. And so, I mean, the most recent book you published is called The Wrestlers. What is The Wrestlers? Um, what is it trying to do and why is it called that? Yeah, I, I won't try not to be too self-indulgent, but um, a lot of people by now have found out this detail of my biography. Some of my fights are on YouTube, and even though I've not talked about it, it has leaked out into the world that mm. I did do martial arts. And some of my performances do use it as well, so I'm guilty of that. But I, I knew that if I released a book that was named after the sport that people vaguely associate with me, me with, they would go into the book thinking it would be biographical, and it's not. So it was deliberately a trick. I knew people would go and think, oh, that's going to be talking about his childhood or something when I was resting, and it's nothing to do with that. I'm interested in 
in a way using wrestling as a verb as it connects to say a biblical tradition of Jacob wrestling the angel, the notion of an internal struggle. And in a more pragmatic sense, it, it really began with an extended commission by Tate Britain and uh, Kettle's Yard in Cambridge about Henri Gaudier-Bresca's uh, reliefs, the wrestlers, where he went to watch British catch wrestling in its heyday and made these nine, made this one relief and nine plaster casts, which are seen as his finest work. So I was asked to write poems responding to them. And so it began a, a collection some years ago that finally took its final form this year. Mm. So it's a meditation, on, it began as a meditation on an artwork and exactly. then kind of spiraled out into a larger project. Well, without being too technical, I think sometimes these things are about the nature of the collection. The collection mm. is a, often a, a unique thing. I suppose it's like an album, mm. but it always has to be themed. It always has to be Sgt. Pepper's. And I kind of resist that a little bit. Mm. So in many ways, these were poems that I felt had a disparate, if ambiguous, aesthetic connection and then I would monkey with the title so the word wrestle <laughs> would go in mm -hmm. sometimes it's that arbitrary mm -hmm. and in other ways it, it was a very clear and organic connection but because I publish often which is again is quite rare for a poet to do a book a year to me each of my books is not only an exercise in a certain style a certain subject but also in a certain form of the book itself mm -hmm. because I think people forget so quickly that the book is a massively contextual part of what we do as poets. If you don't worry about the shape of it, the tone of it, the order of it, the color of it, the feel of it, you're missing out on a really central aesthetic element of how people understand your work. That's interesting because it's, I think now we're kind of starting to wade out into um, murkier waters around um, questions of medium. And like, I know that you're interested in language as a kind of boundless material thing, in a way. I mean, you've asked questions in the past. I'm going to try and find them now. Um, so, what is in the shape of a letter? What images do words recall? What is the meaning of color and poetry and text upon a page and white space? How does the situation of a poem change its meaning? You're interested in composition, I guess, as much as, as the content itself. And I guess to me, this is where poetry becomes very architectural. Mm. Um, because, you know, architects um, in some ways could care less about content. We're, we're, we're dealing with the, um, the shell of things in a way, or the backdrop of things, or the platform of things. Um, and we can only really ever imagine what will take place inside of the buildings we make. And I feel like there's some kind of link there, uh, and maybe it's a bit of a stretch to make it so early on in that way. But you know, as I read that set of questions that you've been asking in the work you're doing, it made me think, oh, this is maybe some, some way in which we could start to see poetry and architecture come together a bit. No, I think there is a, a link there. And often I've when I've spoken about subjects, say, photography and poetry, I just took a course at the Photographer's Gallery and people would say the link between poetry and photography, I would reject it because they're using poetry as a metaphor, not as a practice, not as a thing, but mm. the poetry of something. And they speak about it in such an ambiguous and, and, and open way, it's meaningless. But in, in this case, I think there is actually a direct and concrete link. Poetry has absolutely emphasised content over context to its great uh, limit and detriment. 
a huge influence on me early on was the concrete poets of the 50s and their origin is the same origin as design technology and design and direct connections to architecture in Brazil and in Japan and Sweden. It's the same thinking, it's the same kind of practical application and understanding of space only with um, letters and words being the material rather than the building of houses or landscapes or spaces. So this has been a huge element of what I tried to do with with my residency with, with Joe Gibbons and, and I'd much rather be a poet writing about architectural ideas than a poet writing about poetry ideas. This is another one of the terrible failings of poetry. It's, it's misunderstanding of its role. It, it's a medium to translate things. It's not a end in and of itself. So the language of architecture, the ideas of architecture can be applied to poetry but only if one has this elastic sense of what poetry can can be and is and mm. I think the the example you've used is is so vitally important because the poet is never there when their work is read mm. that's a direct connection the architect is not there I mean away from the obvious thing if they look but the same for a poet when their work is experienced or enjoyed or criticized these are there's a distance in the practice and the poet is creating something that's contextually meaningful before its content meaning and that's what i do with my students i get them to read i ask them for example it's a banal question how do you buy books you can't have read the book before you bought it and they never even considered before that there's a myriad of contextual pieces of information away from the shape and color of the book the cultural reality of where the book is or mm -hmm. who brought it to them all these things directly connect to the practice of something like landscape architecture. And there's another, I think there's another connection to architecture there in this idea of elasticity. At the top of your biography, your biographical statement on your website, you have a quote from the Bauhaus educator, Laszlo Naholi Nash. And in that quote, uh, he's essentially lamenting the loss of the generalists and the rise of um, specialization. And that there's a certain atrophy of of creative thinking that goes on when we uh, we specialize as designers that kind of mentality of i guess what we call now interdisciplinary thinking is also at the core of of architecture i think um, and it's something that i think a lot of architects strive to achieve a kind of general knowledge of lots of disparate things um, and so like you're kind of taking that identity and calling it a poet now. And often there'll be this blurry line between poet-artist or artist-poet. Mm. Um, maybe the question here is like, what, where does poetry begin and end? Because a lot of your work is performance-based, a lot of it is visual, um, and could fall under different categories if you wanted it to. Yeah. Why is it important to keep that as poetry, to call it poetry? Well, I think in a way, you, you've expressed very eloquently something that has always possessed me. As soon as I got the confidence to know that poetry was my base, maybe just because arbitrarily I was, it was the first thing that I did okay in, that I got recognition for and began a new creative life, or maybe because I am very linguistic. But once I accepted that and then started to investigate the possibilities practically as well as conceptually of other practices, maybe not even arts, what can I steal from architecture? You know, 
if I was going to reflect back on one of your earlier questions that I never got round to answering about collaboration, I see collaboration as pedagogical. I'm trying to steal people's souls. I use the metaphor of the Highlander films. You know, when you cut someone's head off, you get to steal all of their magic. It's the quickening. Uh-huh. I'm trying to collaborate with Joe Gibbons in order to rob from her her virtues as well as her practice. And what I realise in that, shall we say, in a boring example, is professionalism. Like <laughs> poetry, a lot of poets don't have a website that you could click on and see a quote. They don't have like an easily accessible um, kind of mode, shall we say, professionally. But then conceptually too, many practices have this fundamental trust that their overall wide interdisciplinary practice will be shaped prag- pragmatically. You only have so many hours in the day. The notion that, say, you're interested in 10 things, you'll never do anything is not true. Architects build buildings with all of these different practices together, combined. One can balance that. So in that, when you really look at it honestly, you start to realize that poetry has really emphasized the cult of the individual. Culturally, not for any real reason, just culturally. So I'm very proud that I've actually stolen practices and ideas from lots of other fields while also trying to be very faithful to poetry history and do lots of projects that support and encourage other poets. And in that then there becomes a natural trust in myself that my base is poetry, that it is somehow the development of language arts or text arts. But when we start to get to these edges of what it is, I suppose my feeling is it, it doesn't matter so much that theatre is theatre on my website because it was in a theatre and that those definitions can be very pliable and open but it has become clear often I feel quite sad about it that I am fundamentally a poet sometimes I do rather wish I was a novelist or a playwright or an actor or a musician but I'm not and that annoys me because it seems deterministic to me And yet my role in poetry and often my work is often arbitrary I don't really believe it was fated it was random. I could still be a doorman getting my head punched in in Newcastle. about Paolo Freire. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. He seems like a figure that's come up again and again, um, maybe in other interviews you've given, Mm. um, who I don't know a lot about. I mean, you're talking about education and organizing generally, Mm. and I feel like those broad categories kind of hang above this Brazilian educator and philosopher's work. And just for my own sake, I guess for people who are listening, Who is this guy and why is his thinking so central to what you do? Well, I think that 
I shan't recount his biography because I'm definitely not an expert on him, but he was someone I found when I was studying before I came into poetry. And I realised maybe two or three years in, what I, when I started in poetry, I obviously felt I was behind everyone. So I thought, well, there's no point in being shy. You might as well go and email people that you find that you admire and either interview them or invite them to read. And very soon I was then invited in the same reciprocity and, shall we say, unfairness of all of all industries back to do those things and then made connections. And a lot of people do that and then perhaps their work is not that interesting and everyone knows them as an organiser and not a poet. Mm. Maybe because I was fortunate enough to do strange works early on, then things kind of, the seas all rose at the same time. And what I realised is in doing that, there definitely was a sense of resistance to the notion of the poet organising and maybe even teaching creative writing, which is a very a subject very early in its development. I had literally two or three organisers lean in and say, don't organise too much because no one will ever read your poems, i.e. you can't do both in poetry. Because I suppose they imagined that then people will only support your work because they think you're going to invite them back. And a touch mm. of that is true. Mm. But what I found in free area is this sense that if you feel passionately that there's things about the way in which shall we say we are taught things or people experience things in this case poetry if you're going to have a critical fac faculty which is quite essential to your medium and you've heard a lot I've moaned a lot in this beautiful podcast about what I think poetry could do more hopefully that doesn't at all cover my love of it and, and what what is done well you have to then take responsibility for the space in which it's experienced you have to create an alternative and, and the notion of organization as a way of making collective understanding, as a way of teaching and sharing, was brand new to me. I found it very exciting. Because it, it seemed to me to be a direct and powerful statement against those who theorise and do nothing, of which poetry, like all things, is full. There's lots and lots of people, especially nowadays, who will go on Twitter and, and slang people down because it's immediate, but won't take responsibility for the hard work of creating spaces where their ideas can be realised. And I'm really proud that I've had people from 40 countries at my readings, and I've organised in 22 countries around the world, and, and I've always had good funding and I've paid people. I'm really proud of that because that is, as Friere says, an antagonistic act against the unspoken collective authority of the people who control the ways in which we experience things. Now, he means it on a state level, and he means it about the education of children. Mm. In my opinion, my use of that uh, theoretical work is, was limited until I, until I started teaching it at uni. But it was a way for me to feel like my organisation was important. For example, he speaks about not having utopian visions in educational practice. And it saved my life, that. Because if I'd have started organising events thinking I was going to change literature I would have given up but he writes very clearly about almost like a process orientated thinking around organization I did that and I enjoyed each event and and so I'm still doing it mm. so that he was very important to me in that way um I want to talk a little bit about interviewing now okay. <laughs> um because you had an interview project are you still the editor at 3 a.m.? Or is that... Mm, I, do, I do the poetry. poetry. Editor. Yeah, I do the poetry there. Okay, and so a part of that um, post, which you still hold, uh, involved you interviewing a bunch of 
uh, Eastern European or just European poets? Yeah, European. We did 98 issues of this series called Mantenor. Yes. So could you, could you talk a bit about that, the Mantenor series, what your aims were, and also just what it was like to interview that volume of poets as a poet yourself? It was, yeah, it was, it was one of the best things I did because I did that very early. Uh-huh. And in a way, it was a form of research about my own practice and what was possible. Yeah. A lot of the things that I know about the tradition in England have only become known to me because I went outside of England. The, 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 the barrier that's there is perhaps the fear of the limits of translation, but I was naive enough to ignore that and just go to festivals, get translated works, start email correspondences with literally thousands of European poets to find out what was happening in Spain, what's happening in France, what's happening in Austria, because all of the early influences I had when I read, say, Ted Hughes next to Tristan Zara, I was like, Zara's my guy. So where's Zara from? Okay, he's Romanian. He went then to Germany, then he went to Paris. Okay, the European thinking, shall we say, in philosophy as well as poetry, is attractive to a lot of English people who resist that kind of you know, normative, um, statistical mindset. Although nowadays I'm a bit more fluid about that. But what I was finding is the work that I was interested in was getting made now, but nobody in England knew about it. The only European poets who were known were these massive post-war figures who were essentially super famous because of the context of the war, whether it was their experiences in the Holocaust or, or in a country like Poland or a country like Ireland. It was political context which gave those poets their power from you know, all the Nobel Prize winning poets to the others that had been published you know, scantily, but that was it. So I thought if I interview 98 contemporary poets who are doing things in the 21st century, not only will I gain a massive awareness of what the possibilities for my own practice are, and that literally happened, mm-hmm. because my performance work now is, is a direct connection to me going to readings in Berlin and Paris and Vienna and watching people do things I didn't think were allowed. And I've written about that too, like the notion of permissiveness. When you see someone really innovating in your field, you're given permission to begin your own journey that maybe at first has an element of what they do, but as soon as it's put through your own context and mind, becomes brand new. And then when you pull it out of that context and bring it back to England, say, it makes you an innovator, you know. So it did that for me. And, and most importantly now, it connected me to an enormous community. Europe, because it is land-connected, has an enormous cross-cultural, cross-linguic cross-linguistic poetry community that we don't have here. We look towards America and our own tradition, but there, there is a massive porous connection of festivals, readings, publishers, translators, and me getting involved in that through Mantenor not only built a body of work for people to investigate and I think start a lot of new connections from England to the continent, but changed my life because it just created these friendships that again when I was fighting I couldn't have imagined being friends with like lovely French poets and being invited to read in Paris so it was aspirational as well as technical and pedagogical it's kind of like you're on this treasure hunt and that you're bringing back the spoils to an unknowing uh, cohort back in the UK and that somehow that's expanding the possibilities of what can happen here it's it's sharing that permissiveness with other people as well and I think that that's why I've kept organizing, because to literally put that into practice, and it's beautiful, eloquently put by yourself, that is exactly it. It is a treasure hunt. And I, and I do find these little gems, and I come back 
and through a non-determinate curatorial practice, but with quite a heavy emphasis on the sharing of these other poets I admire, I made a commitment early on to never write critical reviews, for example. I said to myself, though I might not like a lot of stuff, I will always speak in generalities. I will never spend energy pulling a poet down. In that space instead, I'm going to share someone from, say, Slovakia, who's doing incredible work. And that will create a ripple that hopefully will come back within the people I commission for my events. And obviously all of that isn't often done in poetry. And like going out and emailing Joe Gibbons and all these different things, these are ways to which my practice has expanded and hopefully I've been able to share some of those lessons with other practitioners. I feel like there's another place where you found permission to be strange and provocative and experimental, and that's in this tradition of the avant-garde. And I know it, this is a topic that a lot of people have asked you about, mm. but it's because um, you've put it out there that uh, you are in fact an avant-garde poet. Mm. And I think people listening to this now would almost be tempted to just Stop the, stop the episode. <laughs> Your wise listeners, <laughs> Your clever listeners would switch off immediately and spit on the floor. I'm, I'm sending out a plea before you do. Wait, wait one second, because um, when we hear avant-garde, we think uh, pretentiousness mm. and an interest in art and aesthetics that is outside of everyday experience and is somehow elitist or above yeah. or, or inaccessible. But... Um, Thinking more about the avant-garde through your work and your conception of it, I feel like that's totally wrong. And I feel like we could actually try to rehabilitate the idea of what avant-garde means um, and why it's so worthwhile to um, pursue that tradition and, um, and also uh, uh, evolve it. And so, yeah, it's this question of permission, which to me is so exciting, and that um, when we talk about the avant-garde, what we're really talking about is people at the front of things. Um, not front of the line, but front of the, uh, it's a military term, right? Front of the guard, going into battle, being shot first. Exactly. <laughs> That's always what I say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are your words. And so there's, a, there's an intense amount of risk involved in putting oneself at the front of things and going out into essentially uncharted territory and trying something new. And so like that's, that's actually what it means to be avant-garde, taking extreme risks in some cases and giving oneself permission to do so. This is obviously a tradition though. Yes. And so in a way you've been looking back in history to find permission to do things uh, in your work today. And so maybe we could talk a bit about what avant-garde poets and artists in particular have kind of formed your understanding of um, how you might kind of, I guess, emulate that role in some ways and then mm. allow it to change and evolve. I think one idea that I do want to touch on that connects to this very deeply is this notion of elitism. You know, I'm fascinated by that. Uh -huh. Because let's say as my role as a teacher at Kingston Uni, you know, most people who stand up creative writing don't do it for avant-garde poetry, they do it for genre fiction or children's fiction or something like that. So often I'm seen and accused often 
immediately upon teaching courses with people around my specialty of being pretentious and and I love that I love it so deeply because it gives me a chance to really interrogate myself and wonder if I am Mm. I mean of course I know that my background is a long way away from the kind of heady art school you know bourgeois thing that people associate with that people don't know that about me because I've tried to cover it up and what I've really felt is that a lot of the problems with giving people access to the work that might fully challenge them intellectually and connect to their actual strange experience of the world in language through poetry has been because of a fear of elitism. And so the analogy I often use to my students, and it relates to this notion of the avant-garde, is that when I ask someone what their true passion is, let's say it's motor car racing or kite flying or cooking, do they have the same taste that they had when they started? And the answer is inevitably no, the notion of the aficionado. So watching golf would make me want to hang myself. But some people are so tuned in to the details because their taste through repetition of attention has developed so much that every club, every swing, every move is erotic to them. Now that's hilarious to most people. And yet that seems to me to make a lot of sense. Is that golfing fanatic elitist? Even if they look down their nose at people who don't care, I'm not sure they are. The repetition of attention develops wider, stranger tastes. And in wider, stranger tastes, we start to appreciate the aesthetic of things that fall on the deaf ears of most people, which is no fault of their own. They like what they like. To me, if one really invests time in poetry, one can only end up at the avant-garde because what was pretentious, I found James Joyce unbearably pretentious in my first six months of reading Seriously. Now I can spend hours and hours lost in a page, but I don't expect anyone else to do that. So to me, the notion of elitism and the avant-garde is a social construct, not a technical or experiential. And it's because a lot of people in the avant-garde are like all other kinds of humans. They like to protect their power and they are dickheads. I mean, this is true of all people in all things. So that's a problem because we have to shake that. And a lot of my work in organizing, I always say my events are really challenging work really friendly atmosphere. I want people to feel like really warm and welcome, but the work can be wild. And I think that balance, we have a responsibility doing that kind of strange work to care about those details. And the other element of it is that unfortunately, the avant-garde is a term, just like anything else, formalism or any of these other terms, which has an association which is historically located. And that's a hundred years ago. And so often people say to me, you know, how can you call yourself avant-garde? The avant-garde died out with the Second World War or something. But as you took reference to, to me, while modernism is historically related, in, in, you know, the clue being in the title, the avant-garde is a military term that was taken and used to mean future-facing. That's always what I say. Some people are contemporary, and that is to be admired. Some people are past-facing, writing books of sonnets in 2018, And that in and of itself has a certain charm. And I don't judge it at all. I mean, I get a lot from that. I read, we all read in the past. But future facing requires thinking which simply can't be related to the presence of the past. So for example, two of the projects I've been fascinated in. A friend of mine, um, he won't want me to mention his name, works with the Media Lab in MIT. And he printed some of my poems in synthetic silk in silk that's been created entirely artificially and that when it touches air disappears completely in order to fashion future prototypes for watches and other household items. And we did a performance where he printed them and my poem was created in this gelatin relief 
I read the poem, we opened the case and the poem disappeared. You know, a very elegant kind of parlor trick, which was fundamentally about material, materiality and space. And he's led me to a series of projects, for example, where we might think about how a poem could be beamed into the brain through the eye with a laser that stimulates part of the prefrontal cortex that's linguistic so that you read a poem without ever thinking about language. Now I'm interested in that possibility. I don't know how I'm gonna do it. I don't know, you know whether I can have a role in that development, but if I'm not thinking in the future, I can't possibly even conceive of a project like that. If I'm interested in sonnets, I don't think I'll even care or think that those two things are connected. And it's by looking into the past and seeing who did that kind of work in the context of their time that I might be able to think through my own future. Mm. Those people are an example to follow in their mode, in their context, not their content. Mm. And that's why, for example, in America at the moment, conceptual poetry seems radical because people are obsessed with content. Conceptualism was a hundred years ago. The content's not interesting, the, the context is. Mm. You can't be rebellious in late capitalism in the same way you could be rebellious under dictatorship. So the notion that, say, punk or something that recent could then be used now and a poet stands up, I'm a punk poet, you know, and, and curses out the queen. No one cares because that person thinks it's about content. It's about context. So what does it mean to be a future-facing poet now? You mentioned... Uh, your engagement with different types of technology, which I guess a lot of us do associate with the future. The mm. idea of beaming a poem into your eye sounds absolutely amazing. And I wish if that's ever available, I would love to try it. <laughs> I don't think I'll get a chance, but I hope so. But it reminds me of other poets. There's this um, Canadian poet named Christian Book. Uh, I know him, yeah. Who, um, cool. Um, who... I guess relatively recently has been trying to encrypt poems within genetic sequences. The DNA, yeah, yeah. He's trying the human genome project. Kind of dangerously close to like um, using technology as a gimmick. Yeah, exactly. This is about what I was about, about to say. Okay. I mean, I think that my technology example was me trying to be succinct, but mm. it can be a terrible misnomer. And I think you're right, right to, to very gently upbraid me on it. I think, Chris, Chris, I think Christian's work is, is very compelling. Let me, I th the thing I often say is the world population has doubled since the mid-70s. We're facing an ecological catastrophe that we can't even comprehend. The possibility of living on other planets is not as close as it should be, but is closer than it's ever been before. The internet is a mainframe of information based in language that couldn't have been imagined 40 years ago. And global travel is available for 10 pounds. That is what I'm interested in. Mm. That, is, that is understanding the now to try and get to what the future expression is. What is the poetry of those things? Now I know a lot of peers are concerned with that and are writing it, but the notion then that we would say have a poem on a tablet or an Instagram poem, you know, that's such a banal understanding of what the future will be. Obviously, no one can know the future, and I, and I never mean that literally, but to truly engage with those, say, just those four things I said, we could talk about 30, 40 others. We could talk about what our buildings are made of now. We could talk about the, develop, the notion of development in the city. So most poets who live in cities 
You should think through the linguistic concept of the development. The city isn't good enough. We need to develop it. There's more human beings coming into it. Are they polyglottal now in London? The, the notion of a polyglottal audience should change your poetry. The notion that presses can't function the way they used to, that newspapers don't work. These are the interesting things. And technology has a huge role to play in that. But often I think, again, people, I've been on many panels when people have said, what's the future of the book? Is it that, who cares? I mean, who cares about that? That is a content question. How do we read? Are my students' attention spans shorter because of social media and because of the stimuli in that? Yes. They can't listen to me for more than 30 minutes. What is, one of my upcoming projects asks the question, what is the poetry of prescription medication on young human beings? Mm. I have vast amounts of experience with young people on brutal doses of prescription meds like pregabalin and diazepam for depression getting thrown out by the NHS that's you, altering their brain chemistry. Did you say, did I hear you right and you're asking, what is the poetry? Yeah, what is the, what is the poetry of someone on pregabalin who's, okay. who's got it erroneously? You know, who, I mean, I'm in favor of prescription meds. Of course, they're magnificent. But we all know that sometimes people get them when they shouldn't get them. Their mm. brain chemistry is still developing. I mean, what is the poetry of someone who is online 15 hours a day? It's got nothing to do with Tumblr. It's got nothing to do with whether it's in an email, on an ebook, or in a, a book. Who cares about that? What is the poetry of that experience of language? That is interesting. And that's the future. And so when someone has a book of sonnets that are about love, I think, well, fair enough, but that doesn't seem to me to mm. be the thing that we should be interested in. And that's why I think I'm happy with the word avant-garde, because that seems to be what people associate that with. I love that those are the kind of questions you're, you're asking now, uh, because to me, at the, at the center of that is an idea about empathy and exploring the possibility of um, um, experiencing somebody else's subjective experience. And particularly people kind of on the fringes of things, whether it's someone uh, who's being overprescribed prescription drugs or someone who's addicted to the internet or someone with developmental challenges. So there's another project you've initiated called Poem Brut. That's it, yeah. And like, can you tell me more about that actually? Because I think this ties in to this, this ambition to uh, essentially feel more. <laughs> yeah, no, it, this all comes from the fact that I had been someone who felt alienated all the time. And I felt alienated all the time because everyone around me would be like, let's go out on Friday and drink loads and let's, you know, I'm having a great time. You know, we all, so many people you speak to, there's the C.S. Lewis quote, isn't there, about a friendship begins when you realize you're not the only one. And that is what avant-garde poetry, people that think it's stuck up its own nose and hate it. When I discovered hardcore poetry like that, I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, people are weird too. I mean, people find this in comedy, right? The, the, the tone of your comedy. Well, it, it's there in poetry as well. But when I read the mainstream poetry, I'm like, oh my God, that's what everyone thinks. That's what, how it is, you know? 
it is an unaware of itself and sentimental and blah 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 and then I found this other Jackson McLow or Tom Rayworth or Tadeusz Rodziewicz or some amazing I'll be like oh my god look at this unashamed of their intellectualism powerfully interested in the world and it just made me so excited so I felt like I had a responsibility to try and create projects where all I wanted to do is give people a permissiveness that meant that their feeling was that I might not be the norm, but I'm not alienated in this group, even though it's a small group. So Poem Brew really came out of a residency I did at the Welcome Collection for two years, actually, something called The Hubbub, which was about restfulness and the mind and poetry. And I got to meet a load of neuroscientists and go on some neuroscience conferences and get into a little bit of hardcore neuroscience. So obviously, I have no idea what that's about, but... What it led me to was discovering that a lot of my indulgent ideas around, say, abstract writing, concrete poetry, sound poetry, were very organically techniques used by people who had neurodiverse experiences of language to try and get to a sense of expression. Now, traditionally, we associate this with outsider art, which was massively problematic because it defined itself by an understanding of mental illness, which is kind of gross. But, for example, if I've got a student now who is dyslexic, if they write a poem with dyslexia, it is avant-garde. Whether they like it or not, the way in which that their neurological experience of language is in the world, they're forced to change that, to seek narrative and meaning and construction that we have collectively agreed is normal. And it is normal by numbers. But what is the poetry of that? What is the poetry of autism? What is the poetry of schizophrenia? It isn't this thing where people do a workshop and they're like, okay, you're schizophrenic, just write what you feel and we'll edit it into a form that's beautiful. This is brutal. And it's all because of a certain understanding of what poetry is. And this all comes from the notion that poetry has to please everyone. If I ask people what isn't, what's the negative aesthetics of a building that's deliberately designed to put people off, the love of brutalism, the love of, you know, brutalism is beautiful, but you know what I mean. What is an artwork that is supposed to put people off? make them experience hate, fear, pain. Everyone can name one. What's the poem that was written to make people feel disgusted? You, no one can name one. <laughs> it's supposed to be all about beauty and comfort. And we alienate people who maybe, not just in the content, but modally in the context, they want to handwrite their poems. They want to do it in red ink. They want it to be non-lingual. They want it to look like writing, but it's not writing. They want it to be mess. Every toilet you go into has writing all over the walls. Psychologists use expressive writing techniques where typing out thoughts don't help people, but writing them does. Why is handwriting not involved in poetry? Why is ink not involved? Why are we not listening to people who have different experiences of language in their language art? So Poem Brew is just a way to get publications and events and workshops that give people, whether they do have neurodiverse experiences or not, access to a way of thinking which to me seems fundamentally poetic but is never found in poetry. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Matthew. It's been a really lovely experience to speak to you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Aworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by Dorothy Parker. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. 
Thanks to Henley Halbrand Architects for hosting the interview this week. Thanks to Stephen Fowler, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.